Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 6, The Trouble with E.L. Cord, Part 1. Eric Loban Cord was the perfect scapegoat to drive pilots to join ALPA. If you asked any pilot who flew for the airlines prior to 1932 about the origin of ALPA, more than likely, he'll say something about E.L. Cord, usually punctuated by the kind of stately profanity that one could expect from a pilot of that era. These pioneer pilots neither forgave nor forgot what Cord tried to do to them, and every member of the piloting profession today should know about it. In truth, Mr. Cord had nothing to do with the origins of ALPA. The first formal discussion among six pilots representing three airlines was held at the old Troy Lane Hotel in Chicago in 1930, an entire year before Cord founded Century Airlines. According to R. Lee Smith of Northwest Airlines, David Banke selected five pilots who he thought he could trust. There had been talk about a new pilots association for at least a year. But in 1930, the airlines got together on reducing pay. Smith recounted that management viewed pilots as overpaid and underworked, and they were out to fix that. The others who met with Banky and Smith were Lawrence Harris and Walter Halgren of American Airways, Monty Brandon of United Airlines, and one other United pilot whose name Banky erased from ALPA's records because he went over to management a few days following the founding meeting. Cord's real value was to make working pilots of that era realize just how ruthless their employers could be, thereby encouraging the growth of unionism. Not that flying for one of the major airlines was easy to begin with. Because he was a quiet man who shunned publicity, Cord never achieved anything like the notoriety his wealth and success would have otherwise commanded. Instead, he preferred to remain in the background, functioning as the eminence behind corporate subordinates. One of those subordinates was C.R. Smith, a hard-driving young Texan who rose up through Cord's empire to head American Airlines after Cord gained control of it. E.L. Cord appeared out of nowhere during the Great Depression to head a series of automotive enterprises. He was best known for starting a line of automobiles named after himself, which featured the revolutionary concept of front-wheel drive. However, to airline pilots, he was the owner of two regional airlines, each bearing the name Century, and offering employment to pilots at wages as low as $150 a month. And he still got all the applicants he wanted at that price. The rate was drastically below the prevailing wage rate for airline pilots, but because Cord had no airmail contract, he saw no reason to follow the post office department's pilot pay scales, which paid as much as $1,000 per month under certain bonus circumstances. Anyone familiar with Cord's history as an employer knew there was bound to be trouble. His industrial enterprises were notorious for low wages, union busting, and poor working conditions. The trouble with E.L. Cord began abruptly in 1932, just when Dave Banky needed it least. At the time, he was trying to organize pilots on airlines scattered all over the country, juggle several balls simultaneously in Washington, and maintain some kind of order in his personal life. 
The last thing Banky wanted was a war with somebody like Cord over a regional operation like Century Airlines. Century employed about 20 pilots to fly Stinson Model T trimotors over what was little more than a commuter route serving Chicago, Springfield, and St. Louis with an occasional flight into Cleveland. But when the pilots of Century were locked out, it was the first genuine labor dispute in modern aviation history, and it would become the single most important event in the development of airline flying as a profession and the establishment of ALPA as a force to be reckoned with in the future. It began on a gray February evening in 1932, as Banky sat in his office on the second floor of the run-down Troy Lane Hotel in Chicago. The office seemed like heaven to Banky, who had until then run Alpa's affairs out of the front bedroom of his Southside Chicago bungalow for two years. Amid clattering typewriters, racing mimeograph machines, ringing telephones, and people coming and going at all hours. Understandably, this annoyed his wife Gladys. So it was a relief when Dave cobbled enough dues money together to rent the two-room hotel suite and relocate Alpa there. Alpa was Banky's full-time preoccupation. He spent almost every hour when he wasn't sleeping or flying at the Troy Lane Hotel, where he and his fellow pilots could make plans far into the night. Banky was feeling pretty good. In the space of a year, he had organized nearly half of the working airline pilots in the country into a bona fide labor union, complete with an American Federation of Labor affiliation. Of course, there was some grumbling about the tie to organized labor. This was because some pilots already thought of themselves as professionals, equals to doctors and lawyers, who had no need for the protection of the AFL. But Banky did it anyway. And with the Great Depression taking a toll on all industries, pilots became a little more willing to listen to Banky's arguments as he pinned them down in airports and hotels. However, Banky's bliss was interrupted one evening when 23 Century Airline pilots filed into the Alpa office, led by a Michigander named Duke Sconey. The pilots stated that they had been locked out and demanded action from Banky and Alpa. Without warning, Banky suddenly found himself in the middle of a dispute that would command national attention. Trouble had been brewing at Century Airlines for some time, but Banky had paid little attention. He viewed the situation at Eastern Air Transport and TWA as far more critical, for both were big, important airlines employing a few ALPA members, but many potential members. Eddie Rickenbacker's tough anti-union stance at Eastern frightened many likely ALPA converts, and TWA's management had a nasty habit of changing a pilot's domicile if they suspected him of belonging to ALPA. Still, the Century pilots were ALPA members. They needed help, and there was no way Banky could dodge the issue. Both Banky and Cord had come from similar backgrounds. Neither had much formal education, and they were about the same age. But, while Banky had been rising slowly from Army private to commissioned aviator during World War I, Cord had avoided service, emerging instead as a successful automobile salesman in a large Chicago showroom. Throughout the 1920s, while Banky was trying to make a living as a barnstormer, airport operator, and airmail pilot, Cord was steadily expanding his business influence, seemingly leading a charmed life as he climbed into the idealistic world of 1920s-style finance. 
He got control of Auburn Auto in 1924 and ruthlessly reduced labor costs while introducing several new automobiles. Although the Great Depression blighted most careers, it presented an opportunity for Cord. It wasn't until after the stock market crash that he began to achieve notoriety as a tycoon, dealing mostly in aviation, automotive, and related corporate operations. By the time of the century strike, his stable of industries included Auburn Auto, Duesenberg, Yellow Cab, Checker Cab, dozens of smaller manufacturing enterprises, and of course, Century Airlines. Cord's decision to go into the airline business stemmed from his control of the Stinson Aircraft Corporation and later acquisition of the Lycoming Aircraft Engine Company. Cord had learned to fly in 1929, taught on his Stinson Detroiter by his personal pilot, J.C. Kelly. He flew only when the weather was perfect and only when he had Kelly along with him. This led to Cord's belief that anybody could fly an airplane. After all, Cord was trying to sell Stinsons by convincing people that it was no more difficult to fly an airplane than to crank up the family Chevy. But frankly, Cord was contemptuous of professional pilots, with their scarves, goggles, and pretensions. Such attitudes stood in the way of selling personal Stinsons, and Cord would have none of it. The Depression put a stop to Cord's plan to put an airplane in every garage, as people could barely afford garages, let alone airplanes. But, being a versatile and clever man, he saw an opening. The government's decision to release military aviators from active duty swelled the ranks of unemployed pilots. Cord had airplanes and engines. All he needed to start an airline was pilots, who were now available in abundance. Cord built a high-wing tri-motor airliner that carried 10 passengers, and it claimed to require only one pilot. It was a good airplane and became a profit maker for Luddington Airlines, the first to adopt it. Luddington, a commuter airline serving Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York, began operating in early 1930. Cord was impressed with Luddington and decided to copy the business model. The result was Century Airlines which began flying in March 1931. Century offered three round trips daily between Chicago and St. Louis, via Springfield, Illinois, and four round trips daily between Chicago and Cleveland, by way of Toledo, Ohio. The basic fare was $15.95 to St. Louis and $13.95 to Cleveland. On opening day, Cord sold 163 out of 180 seats available later settling down to an average load factor of 80%, respectable by the standards of any era. Although Century Airlines was only a small part of his empire, Cord was intrigued by its profit potential, especially if he could get his hands on an airmail contract. Most of his profit resulted from substandard wages, especially for his pilots, whose pay was well below the average annual salary of $7,000 that major airlines provided. Cord paid his pilots a flat $350 per month, plus $3 per hour for daytime and $5 per hour for nighttime flying. Cord, however, believed his pilot salaries were too high. When he started Century Pacific Airlines between Los Angeles and San Francisco a few months later, he reduced the basic salary to a flat $150 per month and was still able to find plenty of willing pilots. 
It was the threat of matching the Midwest route salaries to those of the Pacific route that brought Duke Sconing and his band of pilots to Banky in February 1932. That night, the Century pilots told Banky an amazing story. The pilots had learned of Cord's plan to set up a nationwide network of airlines, all named Century, but with regional designations such as Century Southwest, operating at the bare-bones cost of 38 cents per mile, which was roughly one-half of the amount the post office airmail contractors were paid. Cord reasoned that if he could prove to Congress that he could fly the mail at half the going rate, then the chances were good that Congress would cancel the old contracts and reopen them for competitive bidding. When this happened, Cord was sure he could underbid everyone else, win a contract, and make a fortune. Lowering the Century Pilot's salaries to the standard $150 per month he paid on Century Pacific was part of his plan to get costs down. In addition, he was planning to match that salary for his soon-to-launch Century Southwest airline. The Century Pilot's balked, pointing out that they already worked for below average wages and that to lower them further would result in considerable hardship and starvation wages. The pilots of Century Airlines wanted to bargain with Cord, and although he agreed to a 10-day delay in instituting the new salaries, he had no intention of backing down. He believed too much was at stake here to let the pilots foul it up. When the 10-day truce was over, Cord hired armed guards to meet each pilot as he reported for work at Chicago's municipal airport. The guards escorted the bewildered pilots into the presence of a company official who brusquely handed them a sheet of paper that was both a resignation and an application for reemployment at the lower rate of pay. Century's president, Lucius Manning, explained that because Cord was angry with the pilots for not cooperating, they would have to compete with other pilots for the jobs they now held. If they signed the paper immediately and stopped making trouble, then perhaps Mr. Cord would retain them. The whole scene was humiliating, and every one of the pilots refused to sign. Manning fired them all on the spot. Although the timing was poor, Banky relished the century expulsion because it gave him a chance to try his hand as a negotiator. He prided himself on being reasonable and persuasive, so he thought he could talk Cord out of it. But he hit a brick wall. He tried to make an appointment to see Cord and got nowhere. Nor would Cord's secretary put through Banky's phone calls. There was nothing to do but fight. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter six of Flying the Line by Georgie Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2019. All rights reserved. <laughs>